The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 22nd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So did you hear? Chris Christie delivered profanity-laced tirade at NJ Press Dinner. Profanity-laced, expletive-laden, epithet-inflected, cuss-word-larded, a veritable symphony of potty-mouthery. It was to the New Jersey Legislative Correspondence Club. And here now, let's play a clip. Um, the reason that we don't have a video is we just don't give a anymore. <laughs> you heard the beep, the bleep. The bleep reflects that this was, this was not the sort of language that's suitable for a family. Listen to the New York Times as they write this up. Governor Chris Christie ridiculed New Jersey's largest newspaper, the Star-Ledger, suggesting it provided a refuge for angry drunks. He joked about a reporter who was involved in a car accident a few hours earlier. He profanely taunted a reporter with a French surname, saying he could not pronounce it correctly, not because it was difficult, but because he could not be bothered. But yeah, he also got big laughs. This was a roast. This was joking. And this, if you listen to the tape, and we'll play more of it, in fact, we'll play the unexpurgated version of it, this had them rolling in the aisles. And the them was the members of the New Jersey press, the supposed targets of uh, insensitivity. Be prepared. This is unsuitable for young children and old gray ladies. And, and just to show you that I am not the heartless bastard I've been portrayed as tonight, <laughs> I said to Mike, I said, sure, Mike, you know, I'll take your question. Now, I'm wondering, right, because this is like, you know, he's been one asking questions for a while, and I'm kind of gearing up, and Mike was really good. And I think, okay, what's he going to ask me? There's about seven things running through my head in those nanoseconds, right, that you're waiting for him to come out with the answer to the question. And he looks at me and goes, so how's New Hampshire? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? So this was a little bit of media pearl clutching over Chris Christie acting exactly like the forum dictated that he should act, maybe even a little more so. So on the one hand, you have a candidate like Hillary Clinton, who is so robotic. On the other hand, you have Chris Christie, who, in what was supposed to be an off-the-record jokey dinner, really lets him have it with a couple of F-bombs and a couple of S-words, and he gets pilloried for it. I do not think Chris Christie is going to be president, but it does underline the fact that we set the bar extremely high for anyone running for office. All right, end of my thorough and full-throated defense of Chris Christie and his comedy chops. On the show today, we will examine a year, 1984, through song. What kind of songs? The number one song. And it was an Antan twig. Lopstars will be awarded. But first, to the Wayback Machine, 31 years way back, in fact where you'd find a young Mike Pesco wearing parachute pants, shirts with a lot of zippers, and hoping that Denise Williams was speaking of him when she said, let's hear it for the boy.
Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, to bust that ghost, to say hello, to note what happens when birds of the clade Columbidae weep. Yes, that, by the way, is when doves cry. Yes, we were talking about 1984, one of the greatest years in music, certainly one of the greatest years for number one songs in music. And joining us, as he does in our series, where we take a year and look at the number one songs, is Chris Malamphy. Chris writes the column, why is this song number one for Slate? And let's talk about it. But let's talk about it uh, 31 years ago. Let's answer that question. Ago. Yeah. The first number one song of stayed on uh, two weeks at number one was Say, 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 Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Actually, and yeah, that's two weeks in 84, but it was six weeks total. It actually went to number one at the end of, uh, of 1983, which was as much as anything about, you know, Michael at the absolute zenith of his powers, uh, arguably helping McCartney at that point, who was just beginning to fall off a little bit after the amazing post-Beatles run he'd had. And uh, the two of them were a, an absolute juggernaut. And this was after um, he did Ebony and Ivory. Did McCartney ever have a number one again? No, uh, that was actually McCartney's last number one hit. And in fact, if we may zap forward to the present day, the, the hit he had with Kanye West and Rihanna earlier this year, four or five seconds, was the highest charting hit he had had since Say Say Say. Now I'm four, five seconds from wilding. And we got three more days till Friday. I'm just trying to make it back home by Monday. I don't know if we could go in order, but I got to stop at the second number one hit of the year, Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. Yes is not the kind of band that you would ever think would have number ones, but this was... I'm into Yes. This was like a reconstituted Yes. This was Absolutely. like a backdoor yes. yes. So there was the original band. Then they all quit. Then a guy named Trevor Rabin, who is really still really famous. He does a lot of scores and stuff. He starts a band with a couple guys from Yes. Then a couple more guys from Yes join in. And then finally they're like, guess what, guys? We're Yes. Owner of a Lonely Heart is by far Yes's biggest hit and, and clearly their most improbable. Uh, this was not the Yes of Roundabout, and uh, this was the biggest hit Yes would ever have. It's a it's a hallmark of what a an interesting and strange year 1984 was in a good way, that yeah. you had so much crossover of artists who you never would have expected to have number one hits. Just a few weeks later, you had a number one hit by Van Halen with Jump. And not unlike Yes with Owner of a Lonely Heart, there you have them making... Uh, something of a, a commercial compromise with the market. For the first time ever on a, on a Van Halen single, there's a synthesizer solo played by Eddie Van Halen, the same hey, man the who... First, the first uh, sounds we hear on the whole song is Van Halen doing, uh, Eddie doing the synthesizer. Doing the synths. Yeah. It's got that, that, that uh, spongy synthesizer sound. And, you know, of course it splits the difference because, you know, in the middle of the song, you've got both a fleet-fingered Eddie guitar solo and a fleet-fingered yeah. Eddie synthesizer solo. It's, it's as if they wanted to appease both sides of, uh, of their fan base.
Let's not skip over Karma Chameleon, Culture Club's second number one after Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? I want to break the rules a little bit and ask you, This is uh, there are two songs I always have a question about. One is No Woman, No Cry, and I ask people, do you think it's advice to a woman or advice to a guy? I also have that question with Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Do you think he's saying, do you actually want to hurt me? Or is he saying, do you very much want to hurt me? And I know this isn't a 1984 song, but let's play the game. Uh, well, okay, so Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, number two hit, summer of 1983, I'm going to say that it's a rhetorical question uh-huh. and that, that, in fact, he is asking the question not to have it answered. He is saying, you don't really want to hurt me, do you? I mean, that's effectively the, the tone of it. And, of course, when you realize with 2020 hindsight that virtually everything romantic Boy George was writing or co-writing or singing in this period was directed not just at a specific person, but at a fellow band member, John Moss, with whom he was having a clandestine relationship. You realize that, you know, probably all of these lyrics, including Karma Chameleon, the song we're talking about today, was directed at John Moss and, and very much uh, pointed at him that, that you know, you, you come and go, you come and go. Yeah. You come and go. Overall, this is peak MTV in terms of their power to influence the charts. I would say this, you know, 83 right through about, I don't know, 87, 88, like you can you can attach MTV to a vast number of number one hits that would not have been number one hits without MTV. Uh, And 84 is where you really start to see their their awesome power in this regard. You know, uh, not just Culture Club, not just Duran Duran. I mean, it could be argued that Lionel Richie even got a number one hit with Hello because of the very goofy video, uh, story video that he did for that song, which featured a a blind woman sculpting what he, even he has now admitted is a terrible bust of his head. (laughs) They did not put their money into uh, into a realistic Lionel Richie bust. Hello, is it me you're looking for? But whether yes. it's Tina Turner having her number one hit with What's Love Got to Do her With Her only it, number one, right? Her only number wow, one. Wow, that's and, amazing. Yeah, yeah, strutting through New York City with those amazing legs of hers. Yeah. What's love got to do, got to do with it? Or, you know, John Waite with Missing You, you know, kind of becoming this romantic foil in his music video. I from Phil Collins to Billy Ocean, there's just a long list of people who are getting a huge boost from MTV in this period. And uh, it, that can't be denied. And I'm sure before we're done here, we should talk about Cindy Lauper and uh, Madonna, yeah. both of whom wrote MTV uh, like no one uh, had before. Uh, right. To- so Madonna, like a virgin, is her breakout. I mean, she was on the radar with Lucky Star and things beforehand. Well, 84 is kind of like a build year for Madonna. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes, she comes into 1984 with a medium-sized hit with Holiday, which peaked just outside of the top 10. And then she has three... Three hits in 84 that each was successively bigger than the last. Uh, Borderline just cracked the top 10. Uh, Lucky Star gets all the way up to number four, so she cracks the top five. And then Like a Virgin, which we, you know, is immortal and we all remember it from that year's premiere, the very first year of the MTV Video Music Awards, where she famously performs it in a wedding dress and writhes around on the floor. And by Christmas, Like a Virgin is number one for six weeks. So 84 is the year of Madonna's build, basically. Like 
bunch of films launched number one singles. I don't know that Footloose, without the movie, warrants being a number one song, the idea of Footloose, or even Let's Hear It for the Boy. Yeah, I I think you can safely say that the movie made those songs way bigger than they were. Of course, yeah. those songs probably wouldn't have existed without the movie. But yeah, there are only two albums in 1984 that spawned more than one number one hit, and they're both movie soundtracks. One is Footloose, which spawned the title track by Kenny Loggins, his only number one hit. And uh, Denise Williams, Let's Hear It for the Boy. Interestingly, not her only number one hit in the late 70s. She had a duet with Johnny Mathis, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late, which also went to number one. But it had been a long time for her. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this movie clearly made those hits bigger. And then, of course, I'm sure we're going to talk about this eventually, but the Purple Rain soundtrack, Prince scored two number one hits from that. Yeah. And so, you know, soundtracks in general, as you pointed out, were all around huge in this year. There's an interesting uh, trivia data point of 84. It's the only year in history where all five of that year's Oscar nominees for Best Song were number one hits. That never wow. happened before, has never happened since. Yeah, uh, now the, now when they sing, let's pause and sing this song from the movie, every once in a while, you know, the song from Selma, people know. But mostly sure. you look at the guy sitting next to you saying, I've never heard this before. Right, I mean, I like Man or Muppet, but Man or Muppet is not a number one hit. Even the song from Selma, <laughs> as good as it was, was not a number yeah, one hit. Yeah. Uh, no, all five, the two songs from Footloose, uh, I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder, which actually won the statue, Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. And uh, Against All Odds by Phil Collins. All five of those were Oscar nominees the following spring, and all five of them were number one hits in 1984. Not Stevie's best, but you can't get mad when Stevie Stevie Wonder has a number one. Yeah, I mean, I just called to say I love you is a song so cheesy that it inspired an entire segment in both the book and the movie High Fidelity about how it represented Stevie Wonder's fall off. I mean, it, it clearly isn't among Stevie's greatest hits, but yeah, it's a little hard to be mad at Stevie Wonder when he has a number one hit. And you mean that from the bottom of your heart? I, I do. Cha-cha-cha. But if you want to talk about, I think, maybe the best song just as a song, who covered it, what does it do as a song, interesting changes, When Doves Cry is a fantastic song. It's an utterly innovative song. I mean, it takes someone with the ear of Prince to think, I'm going to remove the bass line for mm -hmm. this song. It's going to have no bass at all. It's going to ride atop this pulsing synthesizer, that's going to serve as my de facto baseline, and that's going to give me a hit. And it was just one of those magical moments where, where everything was coming together for Prince at once. I mean, there's an interesting statistic in Alan Light's recent book about the movie and, and soundtrack Purple Rain, where he points out that Prince was the only person to have the number one movie, the number one album, and the number one song in America all in a single week. Yeah. Even the Beatles had not pulled that off with A Hard Day's Night. So it's, it's, a, it's an incredible achievement.
So the last thing I want to say is this is one of the best years for number one songs. It's also one of the best years for number two songs. I mean, none of the songs right. on Born in the USA could break through Purple Rain, and Springsteen talks about this. 99 Luft Balloons never made it to number one. Yep. That's one of the greatest songs. That is covered by punk bands. That is covered by synth bands. Yeah, That's no. a great song. Was Thriller... In this year, did Thriller, Thriller get to was the last? Two? Yep, Thriller, Thriller was an the, okay. So Thriller didn't make it to number one because Thriller peaked at number four. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could we could go down the list of of amazing this is the greatest songs number that two. Yeah. Number two is number three is number four is yeah. uh, I I feel for you peaked uh, by Shaka Khan. Oh my God, the team up of talent on this record. It's got Harmonica by Stevie Wonder. It's got you know Scratching by Grandmaster Flash and and Melly Mel uh, rapping. It, it, it's a song by Prince and it peaked at number three. That's how amazing this year was. You know, all sorts of records like Borderline by Madonna, which didn't go all the way, or Glamorous Life by Sheila E., or uh, Sister Christian, a number two hit by Night Ranger that I've done at karaoke, I'll confess it. This was some year, honestly. Chris Malamphy. He's some guy. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. We pick different years. We go through the number ones. Look, we've done 1965 and 1984. So we've done two of the best, but we'll take your suggestions for other great years or maybe even an awful one. All right. Thanks, Chris. You got it, Mike. So most of you guys are lifelong learners like me. Well, first couple years, I can't really remember. But after that, just voracious learner. And that brings me to the great courses. I am in the middle of watching a lecture series called Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. In fact, I'm more than watching it. I'm listening to it, which is maybe less than watching it. But we'll get to how the great courses can deliver their lessons to you, either through video, audio, or a strip that dissolves in your mouth. Strip dissolving in your mouth is not a true thing. But Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers, is presented by award-winning professor Andrew Wilson, talking about George Washington, Napoleon, FDR, but also some of the lesser generals in history, taking a sure defeat and turning it into a victory principles of war and just war. It's really fascinating stuff. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary. They have over 500 series on topics like history, science, photography, and more taught by top professors and experts in their field. So you get it via an app, DVD, CDs, online downloads. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer on this Masters of War, history's greatest strategic thinkers course, the one I'm talking about. You could get 80% off the original price. There are eight other series that are that is also included in that 80% off offer. So what you need to do is to go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist, and you will see the courses that qualify under this offer, thegreatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel, it's a frickin' Antan Twig, we're about to have us some fun. You know, which brings me to something. Mark Coles Ritchie writes to me and says, I love the gist, funny, great political insight, music is great, funny references to our youth. I didn't know, maybe we grew up together. Anyway, I listen every day, I will just suggest less profanity. 
Cutting that back will keep liberal Christians like me listening. I mean, there's everything about this letter I liked, I wanted to respond to. But there I go, top of the show, quoting Christie with the potty mouth, saying freaking antenna twig, freaking kind of counts. And when I, when I wrote back to Mark and I said, I will try to keep it to an absolute minimum, I think it's just that I define minimum differently than a lot of people do. So, Mark, I'm kind of sorry, but I won't be totally dirty for no reason, but I have a low bar about when to curse. Anyway, here we are. We're in the middle of the Antan Twig. Every three weeks on the gist, it is an Antan Twig. It's, of course, an Antan Twig everywhere every three weeks because Antan Twig is the old English word for a three-week period. Now, the question is, did the old... Old English even know that word. They did not. We made it up. But then again, the Old English did not know they were Old English. Old English, a language. Anglo-Saxon was the people. But the Anglo-Saxons wouldn't have called themselves Anglo-Saxons. They'd have gone by Angli or maybe Engli, Siax, or tribal names like the Mirskanti, Gwais, Westiax. Maybe that's where West Essex comes from. Anyway, also of note, since Protestantism wasn't invented at the time, these white, white people, Anglo-Saxons, they weren't wasps. They were was. Although in the singular, you would say he was a was. It would be was, not was. And to an outsider, he wouldn't be a was. We'd say, no, he wasn't was. Was he? Anyway, enough of the history and the linguistic chicanery. Let's admit mistakes. Andrea, you got a jingle? We. We made. Mistakes. All right, I, that's pretty good. Let me try to outdo you. Mistakes we made a lot, and now we admit to some of the worst ones. You got anything better? Okay, so it goes like this. It's like... We made mistakes. We made And I guess that just goes to show, just like you never get into a fight with anyone who buys ink by the barrel, never get into a jingle off with someone with access to the keys to the producer machine. Okay, first letter when pronouncing Finnish names. One, emphasis always on the first syllable. Two, Japanese tourists speaking Italian. Please don't go Slavic accent. I don't know what that means. The writer continues, we were a grand duchy of Russia for about a century, but we don't talk like them. We have politicians who like to roll over and expose our metaphorical socioeconomic bellies in a half-assed attempt to appease the Russian bear, but we're not trying to be them. So that lesson in how to pronounce Finnish, I thank you, letter writer, Pietro Kamenin Mosher. <laughs> I just totally ignored your advice. I don't know how to do Japanese tourists speaking Italian. That's a great, I would say that that would be a great way to challenge all the great all the great impressionists and the people do accent. Okay, for the next challenge, the impressionists off. Do a Swedish tourist speaking Brazilian inflected Portuguese drunk. Go. I, I, I wouldn't know what that sound like. All right. This is not a correction, for instance. It's a clarification. So I was talking about the Scottish National Party winning 40 of the 41 seats that were previously held by Labour. It was pointed out to me, Labour didn't just lose 40 seats. They lost 58 of the 59 seats, right? They were running someone in all those other elections, even if they didn't hold the seat. So Labour really took it on the chin. I also wanted to note an appearance of mine on another podcast. It is called Nerdette. Here's a tease. Okay, I'm going to reveal something to you. Good. I do reveal something on the Nerdette podcast. I'm going to withhold the revelation so you could listen to the Nerdette podcast and figure it out. 
but I'm going to tease it a little more and say it's about the use of the word nonplussed. Go ahead. Define the word nonplussed. Go ahead. Did you define it as like unfazed, cool under pressure, nonchalant? Well, you're saying so leaves me nonplussed because nonplussed means bewildered, confused, or at a loss. And here's what I told Greta and Trisha of the Nerdette podcast. I'm extremely upset by the use of the word nonplussed, the misuse of the word nonplussed. <laughs> Go on. It is just, it's not that, you know, decadent. We needed a word for that. It sounded good. It was like a natural evolution over time. I don't think people were making the mistake. Nonplussed means at a loss, confused or bewildered. Think about it as plussed. So what would nonplus means? Minus, right? So minus, like you're a little confused. Really. <laughs> but people always use nonplus to mean nonchalant. He was nonplus by that. Not English people, not people from England, but Americans always use nonplus to be, even after he had the pie thrown in his face, he was nonplus and went on with his speech. Wrong. I would be bewildered too. <laughs> and I think the exact reason that people misuse it isn't that we need a word for nonchalant. It's that they're trying to be a little too big for their britches. <laughs> and I like, I like for them to get their comeuppance. And now Lobstars. Lobstars. Lobster. Lobster sliders, lobster pizza, lobster rolls. Lobster's back. Lobstars. I got two. I got a runner-up and I got a lobster. Runner-up, a returning runner-up, Janine Orico. Janine really, really wants to be a lobster. And you'll get there someday, Janine. For instance, after I didn't name her lobster a couple weeks ago and she was writing me poems that were in the form of an acrostic, she, she got a little upset. She uh, claimed gender discrimination. I took that to heart. I've been going over the stats. Let's see if there is a gender imbalance in the gist. Uh, Yesterday's guest was Matt Dix, our storyteller, and the winner of our story contest was Frank Kennedy. What are are their genders, Andrea? Those are both the men. Right. Uh, The day before that, the show was uh, talking about Bob Dylan with a Bob Dylan expert. Now, Bob Dylan, notable white guy. What about the dude? Yeah, Yeah, the expert was a dude. All right. Day before that, you ready? We had Annie Lowry on. Lady. Yes, and also Maria Konnikova. Lady. Two lady show. Day before that, an author about of, of a book about Beanie Babies. Dude. Dude. Uh, day before that, we talked about David Letterman. With a lady. With a, So talking about a guy with a lady, that kind of evens out. Day before that, eating Chinese food out of the carton, I talked to the creators of The Americans. Now, I was just signed up and said, whoever created The Americans, give them to me. They could be as diverse as possible. Describe the demographics of those individuals. White guys. Mm, two white guys. So there you go. You're right. Too many guys. Guys, they're all around us. Guys are looking to talk. I get along with guys pretty well. Believe me, I cast the net wide. I enjoy diversity. And then a guy will sit down in the seat next to me. What am I going to do? Turn my back on the guy? I got to talk to the guy. I'm not going to not talk to the guy. This is not an excuse. It's a terrible excuse. No, uh, I should say that Andrea books the show and it's really mostly her choice. (laughs) And by the way, Andrea, so this whole thing where you were telling me guy or you were telling me woman, what's your gender? Uh, uh, It's about time we tell the just listeners. (laughs) I'm a girl. She is a very high-pitched young young lad, yes. All right, so, Janine, now listen, if I gave you the lobster, Janine, people would say, oh, you just feel guilty. Oh, it's, you know, lobster-induced guilt. So this is why you're once again the runner-up. So if the winner of the lobster cannot fulfill his duties, you, and it's, you're, again, you're right, it's his duties, you'll become the lobster. But the lobster of this Antan twig is Mac 
Barnett. Who's Mac Barnett? Mac Barnett is a really great writer and illustrator of children's books. He wrote The Clock Without a Face, a Gus Twintig mystery, and Tan Twig, Twintig. Coincidence? I'm not sure. Perhaps Mac's most famous book is Extra Yarn. He also wrote Count the Monkeys. Guess what fun activity kids are invited to do in that book? A history called President Taft is Stuck in the Bath. And this is how I met Mac. Matt had corresponded with me, but his girlfriend, not a dude, came up to me in a live show we did in San Francisco, said Mac wanted to be here, gave me a book signed to my kids. It was called Sam and Dave Dig a Hole. It is great. The illustrations, there's a laugh on every page. And in the mail, Mac just sent me The Skunk, his newest work. It's really good. I recommend the books of Mac Barnett. I know he's an E.B. White read-aloud winner, which now is the second thing on his resume, because he is the Lopstar. And that's it for today's show. My song of 1984, though not on the list, was Run, Run Away by Slade, released in Scotland in 1983. But here it peaked at number 20, 1984. And with that in mind... I say, see Chameleon lying there in the sun. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts, Run, Run Away. Bustin makes Joel Meyer feel, well, not good, but he can live with himself as managing producer of Slate Podcasts. If I can't hold Slate executive producer Andy Bowers tonight, I can't dream about executive producer Andy Bowers. Executive producer Andy Bowers knows how to hold me just right. Follow The Gist on Facebook, facebook.com slash Gist. If you want an automatic notification whenever the gist is ready, go to Yo, download the app Yo, and sign up for podcast, and we will tell you when we're ready to go. Just being without the gist takes a lot of getting used to. Should learn to live without the gist, but I don't want to. Being without the gist is all a big mistake. Instead of getting easier, it's the hardest thing to take. I'm addicted to the gist. It's a hard, hard habit to break. Thanks for listening. Working is Slate's podcast about what people do all day. And on our next episode, we'll get a little meta with our season finale. Join us for the How Does the Host of Working Work edition with current host Adam Davidson interviewing former host David Plotz. Find out what it's like to host the working podcast on the next episode of the working podcast. Find us at slate.com slash working or subscribe in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app.